Well, please keep uh, Titus 3 open. We'll be looking at that and uh, I'll lead us in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, as we turn to your word, you would speak to us and move us to change and dwell on your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of the time, most of us live our lives kind of on the surface, on the level of what we can see and hear and taste and touch and feel. Uh, when we're hungry, we eat. When we're bored, we entertain ourselves. When we're tired, we rest. When we have to, we work. Uh, when we're threatened, we hide or we, or we um, lash out. When we're lonely, we seek company. We, we're kind of aware of our needs and what we want and we just get those things for ourselves if we can. And that's what life is about. Uh, much like the other animals, just kind of doing what we can in order to survive in this world. So we mostly live in a reality that is seen, that is, we kind of feel our immediate wants and needs and that's, that's the world we live in. And we're often ignorant of the great unseen reality that surrounds us, of our existence, that there is a spiritual realm and that there is a God and that there's a greater story that we're all part of. And God's grace has appeared in this world and his kindness and his love so there are such things in this world as goodness and righteousness and godliness and moral principles. Those things that you can't, they're not obvious, you can't see them, you don't feel them all the time, but they're there. One writer has described human existence as being like flies crawling across the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You know, the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican in Rome, which is Michelangelo's Renaissance masterpiece and depicts all these biblical scenes, including the one with God and Adam sort of almost touching fingers, you know, you, you know the scene, but it's there on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, but the flies up there, do they know what they're sitting on? No, not at all. They're just sitting there because they like the smell of all the sweaty tourists in there. Um, they don't realise that they're sitting on an absolute masterpiece. The, mag the magnificence is there and they're sitting on it, but they don't see it. And so people sort of crawl over the surface of life, mostly unaware of the unseen realities that surround them, the magnificence of God and his work, the grace that surrounds them and the call to something higher than just take what you can and that's what life is about. Believers, of course, have been shown something of that great unseen. Uh, we know something of the significance under God that there's more going on and we have been given the task of revealing that to those around us who don't yet see it. And the question tonight is how are we to do that? How do we make the goodness, grace and purpose of God clear to the world and to ourselves? How can we make them see? The main theme of Paul's letter to Titus is the truth that accords with godliness. We've said that a few times on the way through Titus. Titus 1 outlined the importance of leaders in churches being models of godliness while they, te while they teach the truth. Titus chapter 2 outlined the go what godliness looks like for various kinds of people each person trained by God's grace to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives. And Titus 3, which we're looking at tonight, is about how this godliness is supposed to stand out in the world. The way we live is supposed to show that we are part of a bigger story than just ourselves and what we can get in this life. At the start of Titus 3, there's a reminder of how Christians should be. At the end of Titus 3, there's a reminder of how Christians should be and in the middle of Titus 3 is why we should be different, why we should be changed. So that's the broad outline and you've got it on a bit of paper perhaps if you picked one up on the way in. 
So firstly, in verses 1 and 2, how we should be. Now, from previous weeks, you might remember, Titus was in on the island of Crete when Paul wrote to him, and the people who lived in Crete were wild and unprincipled and animalistic people. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. And no one would have argued with that. That was the reputation of the place. It was a take-what-you-can culture. That's what people, how people lived. But Christians were supposed to be different. So look at the start of chapter 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. Now, being subject to rulers uh, has always been somewhat challenging. We don't really like being told what to do and we don't like the idea that somebody out there is making laws that I have to follow. For Australians, in decades past, it hasn't been so hard because at least politicians in decades past have had to pay lip service to Christian values and ethics and they've basically sort of, we've agreed with most of the things they've done. But now, of course, Christianity is a little bit on the nose and there are politicians out there who are actively anti-Christian and that's fairly popular these days to be anti-Christian. And it's harder to be subject to them as Christians and respect them when they're actually against us. So it's getting harder, we might think. But remember that when Paul wrote this letter to Titus, it was Nero who was the emperor of Rome and he was no friend of Christians. And yet Paul still says here, be subject to rulers and authorities and be obedient, Christian people. Now, I might need to remind you, but some of you, this is relevant too, tax time is coming up. Uh, I don't know whether you do your own taxes or you get some accountant to do it, who's an expert in getting you lots of deductions or whatever, but let me say to you, we must not cheat. If you're a Christian, you must not cheat. You might know all the loopholes and how you can get away with them, but you must not cheat. You should pay what the law says you should pay, because you're a Christian. Be subject to the rulers and authorities. Christians should be the best citizens that our society has. Even if people judge us unfairly, even if people persecute us, we should be the best citizens that our society has. So, as Paul says here, we shouldn't be slanderers, that is, people who try to cause trouble for other people by the words that we use and how we talk about people. Uh, we should not be brawlers, that is, aggressive people looking for fights all the time. We should be peaceable and we should be ready to do whatever is good and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. Uh, we had a run-in with the council during the week. Our church is trying to knock down a house and rebuild a new one and we, we had these plans we thought were really good and reasonable and we gave them to the council and they said, sorry. And they gave us very few options and it's the kind of thing where you kind of run into bureaucracy and it just makes you, well, somebody like me, it makes me really mad, you know. Very frustrating. And then, of course, I'm preparing a sermon on these verses. Be subject, be obedient, slander no one, be peaceable and considerate, be gentle towards everyone. It's very easy to do that when everything's going fine and you're getting what you want, but when somebody stands in your way, then it becomes challenging. Uh, I once borrowed a book from a Christian friend. It was a Christian book. It, had a hard, it was a hardcover book. And I got the book off him and took it home and I went to, to open it up and I noticed that he had written a note to someone leaning on the book. He'd used the book as backing as he wrote this note. And the note was to somebody who'd parked across his driveway. Uh, and that's why he'd pressed the pen so hard into the cover of this book, right? And 
So I read it, maybe I shouldn't have, but how can you not? It's just right there. It was hostile and it was aggressive and it ended with calling the person a rude name at the end of the note. Kind of sadly ironic that that message is now etched into the front of this Christian book. Now, um, we all fail in lots of different ways because we all have these moments, but, and I could, I could give you examples of me failing probably just from today, but Christians need to aim higher, especially in those moments when we're tested and we're not getting what we want. Can we still be called gentlemen or gentlewomen in the proper sense of the word? Because Paul says, be gentle towards everyone, and it means be a gentleman, be a gentlewoman, be considerate and respectful and don't think of yourself first. It's a dog-eat-dog world. We often find ourselves in competition with one another. Sometimes that's the reality. I'm in competition with this person for something. But often we just perceive things that way. I'm in competition with everybody all the time. Am I beating that person at that? Am I beating that person at that? Am I better than that person at that? And that's how we think often in this world. It's dog-eat-dog. And so if that's how the world works, if it's a big competition all the time, why should I give other people an advantage by being considerate and gentle to them? Well, it's because something has happened to us that has shown us that there is more to our existence than just get what you can. There is the great unseen. And so in verses 3 to 7, it's about why we should be changed. Before we were shown the bigger picture of God's grace, this is how we were, says Paul in verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's how it is if you don't see Christ. What do you have to live for? Well, getting whatever you can for yourself. That's what you've got to live for if you don't see the bigger picture. And some people, of course, see that as freedom. Uh, no one telling you what, what to do, how to live. You can do whatever you want. That, that sounds like freedom. But what happens when what I want conflicts with what you want? And we both think that life is about getting what you can, and we both want the same thing, and it's a competition. What happens in that case? Malice and envy happens. And hating and being hated happens. And that's how a lot of the world works. People see it as freedom, being your own boss, getting whatever you can get for yourself. But if you're not living for Christ, who are you living for? Paul says here, well, what you're living for is your own passions and pleasures. Now, are they a better master to you than God? No, it says they enslave you. You're actually enslaved by your own passions and pleasures if you're not living for Christ because it's just get what you want and you're a victim to your own desires most of the time. If you think you're free, just living for whatever you can get your hands on, not seeing the bigger story, the Bible's words for that here are, foolish, disobedient and deceived. That's how we are if we're living for our own passions and pleasures. And everybody was like that. Nobody would have known better except that God stepped in. And here's what God did. He saved us from that. He rescued us from the futility of a shallow life and from the deception that getting what you can is what life is all about and from the judgment that we deserve. He saved us, Paul says. Why did he save us? Well, verse 4, it was the kindness and love of God our Saviour that appeared when Jesus stepped into history. There is a bigger picture and there are such things as kindness and love in this world. The word for love there is literally philanthropy. It's the philanthropy of God that appeared. 
So there are higher principles in this world than just get what you can. The great unseen has appeared in chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared. In chapter 3, the kindness and love of God has appeared. And in that appearing, God has saved everybody who believes. Now, did he save us, Christians, because we were somehow higher and more deserving of being saved than other people? Can we look down on those who are still living for themselves? Not at all, because it's made clear here, it's not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy that he saved us. God could have let us keep on going our own miserable way. He didn't have to step in and do anything. For the most part, we didn't even know that we needed saving. We didn't necessarily want saving. But he saved us because of his kindness and his love and his mercy. How did he save us? Well, notice in verse 4, God is our saviour. In verse 6, Jesus Christ is our saviour. And in verse 5, the Holy Spirit is involved in our salvation. So the three members of the Godhead working together to save us. And it says there, the Holy Spirit is poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. He gives, he gives us the washing of rebirth, that is a new nature, and renewal, that is a new life to live. And tied up in that is being justified by his grace in verse 7. That is, God accepts Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and declares us righteous even though we're sinners. So in every way when you're saved you are made new, new natures, new life, new status before God and remade as heirs of the hope of eternal life. He saved us. So it's a very thorough knockdown rebuild that God has done in a Christian's life. He's knocked down our old selves, he has cleared away the rubble, he has rebuilt us for eternity with him. That's what God has done in saving us. The way that Paul describes it here, I think, is intentionally, it, it makes it very clear that there's a great chasm between those who have been saved and those who have not been saved. There's a great gap between. That gap can be crossed at any moment. The moment a person repents and put their faith in Jesus, they receive salvation and they cross over that chasm. Uh, there's nothing stopping a person from crossing over God God just says to us ask me and trust me and I will save you I'll bring you over from death to life so you can be saved tonight if you're not already saved but that saving is a huge event there is a huge chasm between not being saved and being saved it's from death to life and that's why Christians should be very different we may not look very different on the surface, but we should be very different because something incredibly huge has happened for us. We have been saved. We have seen the great unseen. We have been remade and truly set free. So Paul finishes the letter with another reminder of how we should be in verses 8 to 15. Firstly, he says, we should be focused and not distracted. Uh, verse 8, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So Christians need to focus on what God has done for them. That's the trustworthy saying that Paul says Titus should stress, be emphatic about what God has done for us. Because after all, if we only ever tell people, Oh, this is how to be a good person, you should do this in order to be a good person, etc., etc. If that's all we ever say is be good, be good, be good, and never remind them on, uh, people of what God has done for them, then we lose the bigger picture and we lose all the power for, for living for Christ. So Paul says, 
stress these things, emphasize these things, be emphatic about the way that God has saved us. That's the trustworthy saying. Because after all, we can easily be distracted by that, uh, even by things that seem biblical. Uh, In verse 9, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these things are unprofitable and useless. So you can actually have your Bible open and be reading it and still be unprofitable and useless if you're not talking about what God has done. Sometimes people make a big deal about their own little theological hobby horse and in their small group or whatever, they kind of ride that hobby horse and try to force it, force it on other people. But if the message can't save people, then it can't change people either. It's unprofitable and useless. Focus on the gospel, don't be distracted. Secondly, we should be united and not divided. We've got these greetings at the end of Paul's letters and you kind of brush over them, think, oh, yes, he's saying hello to his friends and that's enough. Uh, he's making plans, he's sharing news, but they're actually a lovely little picture of gospel unity when he's, saying, he's writing these things. So here he's sending Artemis or Tychicus to take over from Titus in Crete. Titus is supposed to join him in Nicopolis. Uh, he wants the church in Crete to help Zenos and Apollos on their way by kind of giving them everything they need to go on with their work. In verse 15, he says, everybody with me sends you greetings. Greet all those who love us in the truth. Grace be with you all. In verse 14, he talks about our people. So it's a picture of unity in the gospel of God's grace and everybody working together and sharing concerns and sharing priorities and seeing the bigger picture and seeing what God is doing in the world and being involved in it together. Christian people who believe the gospel and see the bigger picture. By contrast, there were also people hanging around who didn't quite get it and didn't quite see it. And so he says in verse 10, warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful, they are self-condemned. So that's someone who has an agenda other than the gospel and they're pushing that agenda and trying to draw people away out of the church to their own agenda. And Paul says, well, they should be warned once, twice, and then excluded if they insist on promoting this agenda, which is not a gospel agenda. It's always tricky for church leaders when these sorts of things happen in churches and and somebody comes in and and tries to uh, draw other people away uh, with a a strange sort of agenda, especially when there are egos and personalities involved. And, uh, you know, the question is, to what extent am I defending gospel unity here and, and to what extent am I just sort of insisting on having things my way? And it can get a little bit tricky when it becomes a clash of personalities. But the ideal is that we're all happily cooperating and serving God together with the gospel at the centre. And so we have to guard that gospel firmly and emphatically and being, be tough about that, be very focused and tough on keeping the gospel at the centre while at the same time being selfless and considerate and gentle. That's how to promote unity rather than division, and it's very important according to Paul here. And thirdly, we should be devoted and not useless. In verse 8, those who've trusted in God must be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And in verse 14, again, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. So, as we read, you know, Paul's expecting the church in Crete to provide for the needs of these gospel workers in verse 13. Uh, Zenos and Apollos send them on their way and give them everything they need. 
that sort of thing, those are good works that we should be doing. We can use our money to do good by supporting gospel work. Uh, we can use our time to do good by doing gospel work in, in, and getting involved in the church, etc. And more broadly, back in verse 1, we should be ready for any good work that God gives us to do in this world. And we need to learn to devote ourselves to doing good work. And we need to learn to divert our thoughts and our energies away from just how can I get what I want in this life to how can I serve God and do good to others. Obviously, the natural, our default is to how can I get what I want. Um, this is what I need. This is what I want. I need a little bit more of that or I'm really desperate for that. And that's what consumes us and that's what we aim for. But Paul says we've got to learn to devote ourselves to doing good works. You know, you might set your mind to learning all kinds of things in life. You might want to learn Spanish or you might want to learn how to surf or learn the guitar or surfing and guitar are two things I've tried to learn and failed, incidentally. Here's the number one priority. You've got to learn how to devote yourselves to doing good works. And if you don't know how to do that, then find somebody who does look like they know how to do it and learn it from them. You're a Christian person. Paul says this is priority number one. In verse 8, when God's people are focused on the gospel and devoted to good works, then these things are excellent and profitable for everyone, as opposed to the unprofitable and useless results of distracted and divisive people. And in verse 14, again, when we're devoted to good works, we can meet urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Our lives aren't wasted just taking what we can. Rather, we're fruitful. We'll have something to show for our lives. Uh, imagine yourself on the last day and you're standing before Jesus, the judge, and he says to you, what do you have to show for your life? How productive has your life been? Well, when you're standing on that spot, you want to be able to say something more than, well, I lived in a really nice house and I had some great holidays. You want to be able to say, my life was fruitful and I tried to do some genuine good because I, I know that I'm an heir of eternal life and eternity was waiting for me. You know, the bigger picture. So this is not just moralism uh, that we're being called to in this chapter. It, it's the fruit of genuine gospel conviction that we're being called to. We're not just being called to be do-gooders. We are being called to submit ourselves to the truth that leads to godliness, to believing it and then living it. That is, seeing the great unseen, realising that the grace and kindness and love of God has appeared and realising that he has saved me by his mercy and I am a new creation so I can't just go on living for myself and just taking what I can and that's what my life's all about. So as we finish uh, tonight with prayer, um, we're not just going to pray that we can be better people, we're going to acknowledge what God has done and we're going to ask for it to play a bigger part in our lives. And I've printed a prayer at the bottom of the outline that you've been given, uh, which you can actually make your own if you want to. I'll pray it and you can say it quietly in your own head to God. And if you've never before put your trust in Jesus, then if you pray this prayer, actually you'll be becoming a Christian at this point. If you pray this prayer and you mean it, you'll be crossing over. For those of us who've already crossed over, um, we'll be recommitting ourselves to the great unseen truths and to being changed and devoting ourselves to good works as well as believing uh, what we're told in the Bible. So let's pray this prayer. I'll read it out to, uh, and you can pray along. Heavenly Father, 
I am sorry that I have spent so long ignoring you and living for myself. Thank you that in your kindness and love, you sent Jesus to save me by making me a new creation through the Holy Spirit, justifying me and making me an heir of eternal life. Help me to live for the great unseen realities, focused on your grace and devoted to doing good. In Jesus' name, amen.